You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your green-eyed host, Abraham. And I will also be your green-eyed host, Shane. So we're on the same team. Yes! Nice. It's because we're the best for now. We're the best. Until we switch places. Until we switch places, then it becomes a serious problem. That's right. All right, so this episode focuses on an exercise that was done, and we're telling the story, this interesting story about this teacher, and she decided to conduct this anti-racism exercise, and her name was Jane Elliott. She was in Riceville, Iowa in 1968, and this happened right after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., R.I.P. She felt that her, although her students did, of course, acknowledge King's death, their comprehension of sort of racism and the effects of racism were really just at a surface level at best and really felt like that it required more hands-on insight and sort of to do an experiment in prejudice as she described it. Shockingly, you will find that this story or, uh, you know, kind of the idea of surface level of understanding of racism still a problem today in 2021. That's a fact. That's a fact. As we kind of go through this, you'll be like, oh, I guess this is still a, a unique concern and people simply don't get it because you'll hear phrases like, well, it doesn't happen to me or it doesn't affect me or I've never seen it. They're all wrong. So in 1970, a producer from ABC News chose to film a documentary called The Eye of the Storm, which filmed Elliot performing the exercise in her third grade classroom with a room full of white students. 14 years later, in 1984, the PBS program Frontline filmed a reunion of Elliot's same students to discuss the impacts of the lessons as they transitioned into adulthood. And you've probably seen these clips. I would imagine that you have probably seen it if you are somebody who has studied psychology or anything like this. This is a fairly, I would say, popular video in this particular area of study. I mean, just fascinating to hear. And Frontline and other documentaries also offered a glimpse into further iterations of Elliot's exercise that she had conducted, not only with children, but also, of course, with the only group of people who will ever be used for research, college students. <laughs> uh, the perfect pool. They really are, as well as businesses and correctional facility staff as well. So it almost feels like the Zimbardo Stanford prison experiment all over again. Yep, yep, yep. So in regard to the initial lessons, she so powerfully remarked, quote, I watched wonderful, thoughtful children turn into nasty, vicious, discriminating little third graders, end quote. So today, as we as we already have basically described, we're talking about this experiment where I talk about what happened, how it worked, why it worked, the implications of it and that sort of thing. In case this was something you weren't already familiar with, this is a exposure to it. So you get to learn about this interesting thing that happened. And I think that it also illuminates something very important about how we are as a culture and what this can look like. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go ahead and talk about this specific lesson that Elliot set up. And so the initial setup was this. She'd asked her class of white third graders, who don't we treat like brothers? And the students had replied, sisters. Just, ah, nailed it. The students had actually replied with blacks, Indians, with specific regard to African-Americans and Native Americans. So this was culture common in, in the area that the school existed in. Right. And then essentially went into a discussion about the disadvantages of being a different color of, other than the dominant caste in the United States and asked the students if they knew how it must feel and suggested that unless they had actually lived that experience, 
that they didn't even know, they couldn't fully know what it was like. Even doing the sort of thought experiment, and this is actually an important point that I think we've discussed in other other episodes and other discussions we've had, is you never know what it's like to be in someone else's shoes and a situation. Like you certainly should try, and I think it's worth trying to put yourself in someone else's position for you know perspective taking and, and gaining an understanding of where people are coming from. But the problem is people will will say that they do that and then brush off the experience of the person whom they're trying to put themselves in their shoes. Right. That it's like you're not actually really doing the exercise. And that's sort of the point here. Right. Absolutely. So if you've ever been in like kind of a like a, have seen this happen in like graduate level psychology classes, if you've ever done like privilege walks or done something in that experience, like this is kind of what we're getting into is like when it comes to ideas of privilege, you simply cannot understand what it is like to have that full experience of somebody who comes from a particular marginalized group. So as we kind of explore this, you'll see a little bit about how Elliot kind of creates an environment where some of these students can get a taste of it, right? but not necessarily the full experience. So Absolutely. ironically, what was really cool about this is uh, not cool about it, but one of the, one of the ironic things about it is the kids were really stoked about this. They jumped for joy at the offer of trying out this experiment and seemed overwhelmingly excited. What Elliot does is Elliot actually begins to categorize the students in the class and you have the blue eyed kids and you have the brown eyed kids. And so what ends up happening is the brown eyed kids wear bandanas around their neck to indicate from far away their eye color. So basically they get branded as a marginalized group in this classroom, right? The brown eyed kids have the bandanas. We know who the brown eyed kids are. We can pinpoint them. We can spot them from a mile away. And now these groups are created. You're my brown eyed kids. <laughs> Oh, I, you know, I didn't know we needed, is it Roy Orbison? But here we are. <laughs> I don't know if it's Roy Orbison. I probably messed that up. We're going to get somebody right in and be like, what is he talking about? Yeah. You fool. So, <laughs> you, how dare you? It's a lag wagon cover. I'll, that's all I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they did. I remember that. That was a good cover. All right. Yeah. As we said, she basically segregated them into groups and created an arbitrary distinction of being either you have these dark eyes or these light eyes, specifically brown and blue. And then we're going to make you wear something to indicate who you are so that you can tell from afar that you belong to that group because that's how most other discrimination is normally going to work. So thinking about Mm -hmm. back to Nazi Germany and Jews were made to wear the armbands with the Star of David. Yep. And thinking about the fact that someone who has dark skin easily observed from a distance that they have dark skin. So that's important procedure or uh, element of this here. So as part of the procedure, essentially what she did is she contrived a narrative. She began developing this idea, the sort of story, and this is very creative and also very vicious, and she perfected this during the following decades and subsequent versions. Basically, it went like this. On day one, she essentially tells the all the students, brown and blue-eyed, that blue-eyed people are naturally smarter, wouldn't beat their kids, and they could use a drinking fountain instead of cups, and they got more time for recess because they, they, were, they were the blue-eyed group. Like They deserve that because they're, they're blue-eyed. But also, the brown and blue-eyed kids were not allowed to play with each other. There was no mixing or mingling of the different eye colors because they had to be separate. So here we are. Now we've kind of set the stage of like, okay, brown-eyed kids are different than blue-eyed kids. Okay, And so this is the, the original starting narrative. And as they go forward, pretty much 
they start fueling narratives. They start creating these new narratives in regard to these groups. And they try to catch any situation or occurrence to drive that narrative. So basically, if somebody is taking too long to follow direction, Elliot might say, now, look, we always have to wait for the brown eyed person, which is I just you think about this. It sounds so mean. Yeah. Like it sounds so mean when you're thinking about this, because like these poor kids. But as you go forward, you kind of find like, oh, there's like some really horrific parallels here and ultimately what could happen is and kind of maybe the thought here is that this this narrative right we always have to wait for the brown-eyed person could quickly develop into some kind of self-fulfilling prophecy for the brown-eyed group members and then now other brown-eyed group members might actually start kind of beginning to do the same things or run into that same kind of thought process and so then the association with things that are related to brown eyes even just saying something that would be a neutral phrase like brown eyes quickly gains a negative connotation to the point where calling someone brown eyes was an insult. And this was, you know, hurting kids' feelings and people would refer to their brown eyes and call them brown eyes or call someone else a brown eyes. Right. It was using a characteristic that's associated with something negative to then slur other people. Right. And so then it so <laughs> it gets worse. Ultimately, what happens is they end up starting to justify antisocial behavior. So they stop providing extra food or snacks for the marginalized group. They use violence to keep them in line. One brown-eyed kid engages in aggression toward a blue-eyed kid outside the class for being made fun of. So like now brown-eyed kids start getting more aggressive in these situations. And you start seeing kind of this shift from, like she said, these really nice kids, these vicious, mean kids. And so this marginalized group, which is the brown-eyed kids, they report spending more time worrying about stepping out of line given mixed signals. So they're worried about what other people think of them. They're worried about all the little things they're doing, more so than focusing on tasks that they would have otherwise been engaged in. And so this privileged group, the blue-eyed students, they don't have this burden. They don't have to be worried about being scrutinized for everything they do, for being accused of doing all these things wrong. And so you sort of have that, as you mentioned, the self-fulfilling prophecy of, like, oh, these brown-eyed kids are the worst. And so then someone mentions to a brown-eyed kid, like, you just need to, you know, you suck because you're brown-eyed. And the kid tries to defend himself. And they're like, look, he is the worst. We showed you. We told you he was going to do this. Uh-huh. And like, yeah, just, I mean, this is a this is a huge thing. Like, to I think seeing the parallels show up immediately. So to kind of further get into this, right, the kids started reporting that it wasn't worth engaging. The marginalized kids, the brown eyed kids started reporting that it wasn't worth engaging in certain behaviors because it was more likely they just got in trouble. And we still see this thing. They don't even bother people like certain people of certain marginalized groups won't even bother engaging in certain behaviors or doing certain things, because if they step out of line, they get in trouble. They have these additional worries that other groups don't have. I mean, it is really a lot of serious burden for these groups. Now, one thing we want to emphasize real quick, all of this information we just shared, all of these stressors, the aggression, the slurs, the change, all of that happened in a single day. Right. This is just to be clear, a, a single day. That's how that's how in, intensely powerful this was. This demonstration was right. Yeah. Like just by the afternoon, like in the morning, they introduced this <laughs> concept that we should segregate these groups. And by the afternoon, there is slurs, aggression, arguments, belittling. And like this caste system sort of immediately forms in the classroom really quickly. That is with a, a small group of people with a simple narrative with simple connotations that have come out of this. Now, I guess maybe there is a bright side to this. All the kids got to experience this. So on day two, the brown eyed kids were now 
the superior kids. And then the blue eyes, they had to change places. So now it was the blue eyed kids that were the marginalized group. The blue eyed kids that despite knowing how the system works, what we found is that the blue eyed kids now became the marginalized group and the brown eyed kids did the exact same thing. They were really quick to pass off their bandanas to these blue eyed kids. They were really quick to get to shed that title, that demographic, that specific connotation that went along with being the brown eyed kid the day before. They immediately, as soon as they could reverse places, they did. They handed it off, gave away that burden to somebody else. So in case you were worried that like, well, maybe brown eyed kids really are more aggressive and really are worse than blue eyed kids. We were able to get a good solid reversal in this experiment and just look how quickly that formerly disadvantaged group, they put the collar, the bandanas on the other, the opposing group. Is this better now that they have an opportunity to put someone else down? Right. And so the initial persecution of the brown eyed kids seemed to foster the sort of vindictive population eager to impart the same sort of aggression and treatment on their, the party that had been putting them down. This is a, a quick turnaround here. And I think it maybe doesn't quite capture a lifetime worth of bigotry being subjected to a lifetime worth of bigotry and how you might react. But it is interesting to see that it just from the perspective of as soon as we treat one person as belonging to a caste and that that caste means that they are in a position of quality or rank relative to other people, how that power dynamic immediately emerges. Right. At the very end of this experiment. So you've got day one, the brown eyed kids are a problem on day two. The blue eyed kids are their problem. And at the very end of it, they do a final debrief regarding kind of the purpose of the lesson and making sure the kids understood it. And the kids chose unanimously to throw the collars away, perhaps signaling their abandonment of such subjective and dangerous categorizations. Now, there's something to be said about that, about the idea of like saying we're all one. Like there is a problem within that statement too, right? That does, I don't want to say whitewash, but that does wash out culture and nuance and like particularly important demographic types of things that are, that are valuable to groups of people. So just throwing away the collar is a nice idea, but simply not going to be helpful or at the end of the day, it's going to be kind of like dismissive of those important cultural nuances too. Right. Yeah. Like deeply embedded systemic racist issues. Right. Are not going to be so easily tossed aside much as we may wish to be able to do so. Right. So in reflecting on this, Elliot said that they had, quote, immediately created a microcosm of society in a third grade classroom, end quote. Yeah. And I think a very poignant way of describing the social dynamic that sprung up around this that is similar to other social dynamics in a larger context. Right. And there was apparently a reunion in 1984, and they discussed that the, the collar was sort of a metaphor for how it strangles opportunity and ambition. And the students felt like they were friends one day and then enemies the next, and indicated that violence doesn't help anything. Looking at the kid at recess, for example, so it's, it's not really ever justified. Even like years later, these kids are seeing this lasting impact about this thing, right? So, of course, this is a single study, right? This is one study in one particular context, and it's done safely too. So like these kids were safe. I mean, there is that moment of aggression and we saw that kind of spike up and all that. But for the most part, this is a safe, protected space where nobody's life is endangered, right? As these extensions go on though, Elliot went and gave uh, lectures around the world, including in Australia, Canada, Germany, the Netherlands, Northern Ireland, and Saudi Arabia. So Elliot went around and spoke at a lot of different places. And Elliot also put together the New York's Greenhaven Correctional Facility staff exercise. So this is the time that, that she did it with adults in a correctional facility. And so what Elliot does is Elliot runs this exercise in which she spins a narrative about what blue eyed people do to fuel temporary hatred against them. 
This attributes any one misdeed by one person as representative of the whole. So essentially what happens is one person who's blue-eyed does something. Now the entire blue-eyed group becomes a problem because it's, it's like kind of like creating a monolith out of this one person. And so even within that one participant expressed that, quote, the mere argument was used against us, end quote. It was frustrating to ever voice your opinions for fear of looking like a stereotypical dissident. Like you became this serious problem by being associated with that one person who did that one thing. And now your entire group became a problem. Right. So this is the major problem with all of these descriptions when we talk about bigotry. And I think we'll want to really dive into some of the implications of this once we get through explaining all that has happened in these exercises, I guess you could call them. But this, this idea that it's not treating people as individuals, it is treating people as members of a group about whom you can extract some piece of information. So all white people are like X, all native Americans are like X, all African Americans are like X, all Germans are like X, whatever it is. The point being that you take one person and you say, Oh, this is your, your group whoever that might be, they're the worst or, you know, alternatively, they're the best because of some criteria that's completely arbitrary and meaningless and probably wrong. Actually, definitely wrong. We'll just say that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no <laughs> criteria you can apply that is correct when evaluating the, the, the human life. To be clear, like when we're talking about these arbitrary assignings of categories or these arbitrary descriptions of groups of people, this is different than like cultural significance and cultural relevance, right? Like, or the lived experience of those folks in that marginalized group. Like that is a very different thing. What we're talking about is arbitrary descriptions of groups of people, like kind of going back to the idea of naming and how important naming is and how that can really change things, right? Yeah. We're not talking about cultural nuance. We're not talking about like those staples in like particular cultural values. What we're talking about is arbitrary assignments of names, of behaviors, of categories, of groups of people, and how this can be harmful and how it leads to deeper bigotry, deeper problems, deeper discrimination, and, and a whole host of other behavioral problems. Okay, so on a college campus, there was this 2001 documentary called The Angry Eye. And this is a two and a half hour exercise with 24 American college students. Of course. Of course. I mean, who, who else could possibly do this? <laughs> and they, they all participated for college credit. And again, we did this segregate by eye color. And so this time we actually started with the superior group being brown. People with brown eye color all had enough chairs. They were debriefed about the plan and told that they must maintain power over the other group at all costs. And the teacher concluded, if they take power, we lose it. So, Oof. yeah, that's the kind of rhetoric that has not been absent from politics, which is to say, we've heard this. We've heard this very recently at the time of us recording this. Yes. This idea of if they take power from us, then we lose our power. This is a, a fear mongering, like borderline terrorist strategy to inflame a group to action in anger against another group. The more we dig into this, it's shocking how often we hear phrasing and language like that, especially in American politics these days. It's really, really unsettling, but it explains a lot. 
explains a lot of like why people are fired up. So to yeah. kind of go back into the study, you've got the inferior group, the blue eyed folks, right? They have three chairs for 12 people in their prep room. And if Elliot couldn't tell what somebody was, if they were non brown eyed, she just tossed them into the bluey or the bad group. Like, so if they weren't quite blue eyed, but maybe they're green or something a little bit different, they went into the blue group. Right. Again, not dissimilar for how people are sort of grouped according to how, yeah. how we see things go. So anyway, yep. if you've ever heard that microaggression of what are you? Yes, that is a perfect way of how people get categorized in that situation. Right. Yeah. So anyway, she basically starts by saying, quote, today, we're going to take away the freedom to be ignorant End quote. And mentions that the exercise is not without precedent. And in fact, referencing Hitler who differentiated who to kill by eye color as one of the things that would keep you alive, right? Yep. There were signs posted on the wall for participants to read or comment on and waited for the slightest error someone made and attributed it to a generalization of all blue-eyed people. So it's sort of almost setting a trap where it's like, I'm going to set you up to fail and then put you down when you do. Right. And then so Elliot goes on to comment that liberals will often say, quote, when I see you, I don't see you as black, end quote. But if they didn't, they wouldn't even say that. So you can't really ignore the existence of that particular description, right? So Shane, when I see you, I don't see black. <laughs> well, I am very, very, very pale. <laughs> I have black ink in my tattoos. That's about it. <laughs> I actually did my my uh, ancestry test, and it's like as Europeanly white as it could be. All it comes back as is you're white. You're all the white. It, yeah, they were like, uh, if mayonnaise were a group. <laughs> yeah, you're... You are genetically you are related that. to mayonnaise. <laughs> like you are so close to being clear. It's painful. It's like Sweden and Netherlands and Ireland and England. Like that's me. Dangerously low amount of pigment in your DNA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't. I, the sun, the sun hurts indoors. <laughs> so Elliot goes on and harasses a young white woman in the group who begins crying and expresses contempt for Elliot. Elliot responds saying that she cannot pity the woman quote, I cannot shed tears for a young white female in this exercise who knows that this is an exercise, who knows that it's temporary, who knows that she's getting a college credit, one hour of credit for being here. I'm sorry. I have to save my sympathy and my empathy for those who go through something much worse than this every day of their lives. End quote. Ah, so good. I mean, I'm, but like, I get, I get what she's saying, right? The idea is like, you're here in an understood experiment, like in an understood analysis. And this is just your, your minimal experience experiment that you get to walk away from where people live this every day and they never get to leave it. Mm -hmm. So I don't have pity for you when you have the privilege to stop Mike. And this, that's pretty much what she's saying. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> uh, you know, she makes a really important point, right? Like in these, these folks in this experiment had a really hard time, but they get to leave it. And so as you see this kind of play out, you know, uh, Elliot makes another female so upset that she exits the room. But Elliot asked the whole group if the one exiting was in any physical danger and contrast the situation with victims of actual egregious physical violence, such as MLK Jr. or Emmett Till. So, again, how does this play into more recent discussions about being offended over sort of meager things versus the gross violence that she is referencing during the lesson and just thinking about those like public freakout videos? is sort of an example of that, I think. Yes. Particularly people who have gotten really irritated when they were not wearing a mask in a place where they were required to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So within that particular scenario, though, that girl returns, and Elliot chastises her for exhibiting a privilege that participants of color cannot exercise in their normal lives. Perfect example. You get to walk away. People of color do not. 
right? And they can't just up and walk out of the room to escape prejudice, even in their own homes. And so Elliot actually offers a chance to the girl to apologize, but the girl exits again. She's like, no, I'm not doing this. How many times have we seen this? We've seen, I mean, this is, it's, it's scary. It's scary how this is still an issue. I got so much privilege. You can't make me give it up. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to apologize for my privilege. That's not what she's saying. She's saying that you get a chance to walk away and other people don't. So you need to be mindful of that. That's really kind of the point of this. Yeah. And Elliot says that every time that she does this lesson, there's a point where the message is made and she could stop there, but she goes further to really try and bring that point home. And so we also get some reflections from participants where Elliot asks the students to write down three adjectives of how they feel. White male student says he's already figured out the point of the lesson and could predict the conclusion <laughs> and felt he <laughs> prematurely understood it. So he wasn't emotionally invested in the lesson that that, read, that checks out. <laughs> that tracks, yeah. that tracks, that scans for sure. God, man, white males, they're the worst. Yeah. Like I wear my privilege, like a suit of armor. There is no penetrating this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he even goes on. He says that he doesn't feel that anyone has any power over him, nor does he have power over anybody else. So it doesn't matter. He says he's actually native American. So he can pass as white whenever he wants. How convenient. Hmm. Dan. <laughs> Dan. There we go. Is that the, sounds like a real Dan, is that the counterpart to Karen. I think it's Chad's. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can't keep up with that. It's either it's either Chad's or Dan's or Rick's. I don't know. I was feeling less, I guess, less enthusiastic about using Karen as a term because it's a very gendered term. And there's plenty of these privileged white freak out people who are not female. So, yeah, I mean, Kieran is close, I guess. OK, yeah, I don't know. It's not fair to push the the whole thing on on women by by calling these right. these people Karen's. But right. It's a convenient I guess, word that people sort of lean to. And I just, I've guess over time I get less comfortable with it, but yeah. Also to illustrate a point, my mother's name is Karen and she is a delight. So, you know, just the goes to show that when you attribute one set of behaviors to a single Karen and generalize it to an entire group of Karens, it can be a problem. Has she ever thrown a temper tantrum in a store? No, not that, not that I know of. I've seen her throw some temper tantrums though. <laughs> she ever headbutted a glass window because they wouldn't let her in because she wasn't wearing a mask. No, I've seen her kick a hole in a wall, though. It was awesome. Oh, my goodness. What a Karen. Yeah, Karen rules. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, going back to our, our privileged white male, Elliot put him in his place, saying that while he may feel some discrimination for his heritage, he doesn't know what it's like to be overtly different than the norm. So sort of you, you can pass is not what most of these other people are experiencing. That is a common discussion around, I, I know, in black communities, right? right? You have somebody who is considered light-skinned who can pass, and they get a different set of privileges simply by the fact that they don't have a darker shade of skin that gets uh, more discrimination issues. So understanding that point, okay, still does not excuse the fact that, like, it's still a widespread problem, right? There are more reflections, and she sort of just goes on to summarize that a lot of the reflections that she gets from people who participate in this, they actually sort of mirror in a way the sort of stages of grief which we've talked about before we did an episode mm -hmm. on grief last summer i think she hears people who will express anger denial bargaining depression acceptance all sort of across the spectrum here and her goal is for people to act not stand idly by but to actually act in the face of racism and discrimination right she discusses prejudice with a girl in the audience who implies she blends her gender and Elliot suggests that the girl can change her hair, her appearance, her ornamentation, 
but that a black male cannot hide an overt characteristic like skin, right? So, so that's that is a, a unique difference when it comes to skin color specifically. And this brings up a, an interesting discussion of whose persecution is the worst and what value there is in comparing. And there really isn't a value in comparing it, but there is. It's important understanding that there are aspects and characteristics that you can change in some that you can't. And that offers a different level of, I guess, safety when it comes to dealing with issues of bigotry and racism, right? Like you can change aspects of the way you look to quote unquote fit in or to pass, but there are some that simply can't change. And in having the privilege of being able to change that is important to recognize. And I sort of see two, as she describes here, I think, but there's two common huge mistakes that I think I observe the most often with this. One is, as you said, people who belong to primarily the most privileged of groups who find a group with whom they associate where they feel that they are marginalized in that group and then associate that experience with that of people who are of darker skin and their experience in the United States or other ways that people are discriminated against in other, in other countries where skin color is not necessarily the relevant feature of discrimination, although there are still relevant features of discrimination in many other places. Yeah. Obviously. That's, the, I think, one of the main mistakes. is sort of like, well, one I hear very commonly is like, oh, people always go after Christians who make up the bulk of the United States mm-hmm. by a, a gigantic, huge, wide, enormous, gargantuan... I've run out of synonyms for large <laughs> margin. Humongous. <laughs> yeah. It is the just the largest of margins. They are the dominantly sized and catered to group. And then Christians saying feeling victimized as being Christians. And they do get treated poorly by some groups. That is absolutely a fact yeah. that that happens. Not the same thing at all. <laughs> what it's like right. to be discriminated against by skin color the way that it is in this country or the way that Jews were treated during the Holocaust the way that Dalits, or maybe it's pronounced Dalits, I'm not sure, are treated in the caste system in India, mm-hmm. the racial war that has happened in Rwanda, all kinds of things of this nature. It was a racial, would you call, call it a racial war? Because it's not a religious war, maybe. The Tutsis and Hutus yeah. were like the civil, that the, the whole genocide. Yeah. I mean, there's, that's the thing. It's like when you have people showing up on Fox News screaming about a war on Christmas, they do not get it. Okay. Because the war on Christmas is coming from a place where you're upset that Starbucks didn't put Merry Christmas on your red Starbucks cup. Get out of here. That is different than a genocide. And for you to compare it, you are somebody who is lost and should find the void and enter it. <laughs> which is which is not to say like I'm not I'm I'm going to I'm going to be <laughs> sort of an apologist here. I guess it's not to say that the experiences of people who have been discriminated against should not be considered just because they're not as severe as the worst cases of discrimination. They should be. Of course. But as you said, I think the, the main point here is you don't compare it. It's not a, a competition to see who's the most discriminated against. And particularly when there's a pretty obvious way in which one group has been systematically marginalized more than another. And so it's best to stay in your lane, I guess, is the way to put it. It's important to note, too, that like if you are coming from a group who is the majority and just because somebody disagrees with that does not make that discrimination like like I think that's an important thing, too. I think people mix up the idea of discrimination and just people sharing opinions, having that conversation of like, again, like you cannot compare those types of events. You can't compare those things, but also understanding that like you get to come from a place where you get to complain about 
some part of maybe like what you would describe as discrimination when like you have even the privilege of doing that, right? right? Like you have the privilege to kind of come out and say, this is something I don't like and form that complaint where some people can say like, I don't like this, but I get treated. There's no law saying that you can't say Merry Christmas, but there are systemic laws that are preventing people of color from advancing in different places. There are systemic laws that are disproportionately putting people of color in prisons. So like you can't, that's just not comparable. Very much so. The other mistake that I, I, or maybe misstep or however you want to characterize it, that I often observe in hearing people talk about this is to report my experience is that I'm not racist and I don't see racism. And I know lots of people who are of this, what you might call the so-called marginalized group, and they're fine. Like they don't, they feel, you know, they seem to be totally fine. First of all, Your limited experience is not what other people are experiencing. So because it doesn't feel that way to you doesn't mean that it doesn't feel the way to other people. And more importantly, you might actually be engaging in bigoted things that you don't even think about. Like, as you said, saying, what are you or constantly making someone's race the topic of conversation or any amount where you th- you hold people who belong to a, a group of people whose skin color looks different from you to a standard differently than you'd hold other people whose skin color does look like you. Any of that bigotry is something where we have, I think a lot of people have blind spots and you want to try and look for those. Yeah. The simple question of where are you from can be a problem. Where are you from? But where are you really from? I mean, I hear Aziz Ansari in the back of my head where he's like, South Carolina. Right. And it's one of those things where that happens to people of color all the time. Like, I can tell you, my wife gets asked all the time, where are you from? And she's like, Scranton, Pennsylvania. And they're like, no, but like, where are you from? And she's like, well, my family's Puerto Rican. If that's what you're asking, is that what you're asking? What my ethnicity is? And people get really uncomfortable with that. But it's one of those things where, you know, just that simple question is something that can be, it's a burden. It's a burden for those folks who come from those marginalized groups that have to deal with that every single day. Yeah, absolutely. And you just don't know what it's like. So you, you just can't come from the position of it's not that bad for you when you're not the you that you're talking to. Exactly. Just because you don't have that experience doesn't make it doesn't mean it exists. None of you landed on the moon and none of you have had a million dollars in your pocket. Just does, just because you have not had that experience. Does that not mean that those things haven't happened or they they don't exist? Right. So that's like the one of the best like metaphors I've heard is like, have you ever seen a briefcase full of a million dollars? <laughs> no, you haven't. So that must not exist. Right. Yeah. It's like, get out of here with that. Anyway, I know that simple oversimplifies it. But in 2003, an interview with Frontline. Elliot comes out and says that when she completes this exercise, this exercise that we've been talking about and completes it with adults, she doesn't include that flip flop condition. She doesn't include that secondary condition and that she, quote unquote, ghettoizes the marginalized group in the middle under the surveillance of the majority group. So she does this in a very particular way when she does work with adults. She does admit here. This is really interesting that the performing that doing this exercise, this whole performance is just physically and mentally exhausting. And uh, she often experiences a migraine following each opportunity to do this exercise. However, she points out that more than a migraine, she hates that the exercise is still relevant. It's still as relevant now as it was in 1968, that she's still facing the same sorts of issues, even if they don't necessarily look as obvious. You know, since then, I think a lot of good has happened for African-Americans in this country But the large systems are still there. Racism is still very, very present and common and threaded throughout. 
and built on a very large foundation of discrimination and unfair treatment. So it's unfortunate that we're still wallowing in this pool of shit. And Elliot also notes that to this day, there is still a faction of folks in her Iowa town who despise the lesson and its message as her lesson conflicted with the oppressive norms that were so deeply rooted at the time. Right. So they were there and they were just like these were problematic norms that this message really kind of like bucks and goes against. Right. goes against the grain, not to make a sweeping judgment about their community as a whole. But, you know, it might seem that maybe the community doesn't have quite as open mind, an open mind approaching this type of thing. However, I don't think this is a community specific issue. Like, I don't think this is just Riceville, Iowa. I mean, you talk to, I don't know, any white male who has no education on this. And then all of a sudden racism doesn't exist because they've never seen it. So I think that the open mindedness is not an uncommon thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I always constantly recommending, like, really engage in some self-reflection trying to find those blind spots because when you're in a position of privilege you don't even know that they're there because you don't know what you don't know yeah and so you just really got to come from the place of let's start with the fact that every one of us that is in the sort of the favored cast in the united states every one of us is privileged and racist and Mm -hmm. we're going to start there and try and figure out where we're doing this and how we can change our behavior to be more in line with a value that I think a lot of people have of being compassionate, humanitarian, and treating people equally. Yep. If we assume that we don't have any faults, then we're not going to find them. Yep. I think we've got to start by assuming that we do and trying to find them. I recommend, just as a real quick, I'm going to do uh, an in-episode recommendation before we get to the end. <gasps> if you get a chance to pick up, I know, how dare I? I'm, I'm, bu- I'm, I'm going against the grain. If you get a chance to pick up How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibrahim Kendi, it is a wonderful start to exploring this exact topic, which is what is racism? How does racism persist? Understanding the systems by which racism still occurs and understanding how to go against that and fight that and and be an active anti-racist. And so I recommend that book to everybody. I'm taking a lot of time reading it because I really want to absorb the message and spend a lot of time kind of digging into it. So I recommend it. Just go get it and start that education. It's really, really helpful. And many of our listeners will have, I know that many of you listening right now have are thinking of some other books that you think that people should read that are on this topic. Please send them our way. I mean, I always ask at the end of the episode to reach out to us and I always mean it. And I'm really requesting specifically, like I'm trying to read as much as I can on this. Yes. And I think anything that we can share of resources for people to check out these books, they're really well written. Like these are not dry, boring esoteric books they're right they're really good really well written very informative and uh, you know you've got to start somewhere and so even if this is like you can't necessarily end racism by reading a bunch of books at least you can help for yourself figure out where some of your blind spots are that you can be able to be in a position to make some changes in your own behavior yep absolutely i guess you know i was was, that started as a call to other people to help me so I can make changes to my behavior and then we'll share them. So other people who are listening who would like to pick them up can make those same changes as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and look at this from a behavioral perspective, right? Because what we're talking about is fairly complex and it does require a lot of context and it does kind of evoke some behaviors that are a problem. So we're going to start with the idea of rule governed behavior, right? And in those narratives, when we talk about this idea of rule governed behavior, we're talking about when we set rules, right? We set rules, we set some kind of verbal language, some kind of verbalizing around a specific 
description, a specific rule, a specific contingency. And what ends up happening is you kind of have a group of people that will follow that without ever having ever gotten a reward out of it. Right. So like you've got a group of kids that never, ever, ever in their lives thought that blue eyed kids were bad. Then all of a sudden this narrative shows up and they start just following this rule without really experiencing like a, a reward for why, right? They never had that learning history or that experience prior to it. And we talked about that idea of just following orders before, right? The idea of like, there were plenty of people who were just following orders and doing stuff because a rule was set. So they followed a rule without really thinking about the implications of that rule. Right. And the major implication I think of this is that it's very easy to set the context using language that changes our behavior in a fundamental way by making some declarative statement, something is something. And when the the something is an evaluation, like we're going to say thing A is better than thing B, we automatically then are able to derive from that thing B is worse than thing A. And so the other thing about this then is that when we set that context, all of a sudden we can immediately react to those categories without having to think about it. It's it's actually a very useful thing in our species that we can follow rules this simply. Yeah. That we can make a declarative statement and we can then immediately follow them without having to actually practice or or like going through trial and error exposure. And it has this downside. It has this downside that we can say it about anything and then track that thing permanently and then believe it as if it were absolutely true, even though someone just made it up. You know, it comes it comes from nowhere. Yeah. It doesn't have to be real but we can treat it as real pretty immediately. I think another one in here is thinking about this from the perspective of people who are on the receiving end of that judgment and this sort of effect of suppression and punishment over a long term. And this discussion of how to try and even get out of that cycle as from the marginalized group. You're trying to get out of this. Like people are constantly putting you down or constantly doing this, that for you, the bar is so much higher than for anybody else. And for no other reason than you were born with a skin a few shades darker than most of the people around you, at least the way that it's perceived, and that even your attempts to get out of that system are often still punished immediately the first time you ever try Mm -hmm. and get out of it. And so then you get something like, I'm going to react to this because like, I'm going to try and take it back. I'm going to try and take back my own identity or I'm going to try and get out of the system. And you see like all the things that happen. And you can go back to experiments with with pigeons or experiments in like tightly controlled experimental conditions where the effects of a lot of punishment and coercion and suppression are you either try and fight it or you try and get out of it. Right. Or you try and like work through it. But when none of those options work, like what are you left with? Nothing. Right. All you've got is just lay there helplessly knowing that there's nothing you can do. So you can kind of see how a larger system with a lot of checks and balances that are preventing a group of people from advancing, how it works. I mean, it works for the people that are in power. Yes. Right. That's a I mean, very ultimately, good that's it. a thing like it works for the people in power. And that's why you have voter suppression. That's why you have all these different things that are going on that are preventing marginalized groups from taking an active role in their communities. Right. They are, quote unquote, lesser, according to these these larger groups. Now, Elliot remarks, and I think this is a really important and probably a really great way to kind of wrap up in general, is this idea of, quote, racism is not human nature. It is a learned response. And we know that anything you can learn, you can unlearn. 
End quote. We see this all the time. People who are former white supremacists reform. They they take on activist roles in working on very active anti-racist policies, right? So it is possible to unlearn this stuff. Part of it is recognizing that there's a problem to begin with. And that's part of the, the, the challenge in the science around this and the behavioral part of this is recognizing, defining what the problem is, identifying the context in which that problem is occurring, and then figuring out the appropriate behavior change so that that problem is no longer a problem and we can continue to engage in more pro-social behavior. You're right. That, that's such a, a poignant place to sort of end. And I'm going to undermine it just a little bit, not on purpose, but I just, there, <laughs> there's fine. something else I think to say here going back to, cause I feel like I didn't quite finish discussing some of the implications of this coercive cycle, which is that what happens. So as one of the things I mentioned is people who try and break out of that cycle, well, then they get labeled as being this, they're like, well, that we should expect this from you. Like you're raising, you know, you're raising hell because, you know, uh, over nothing and they're being there's nothing that you can do. So you just got to put yourself in the position. Again, this is going back to the sort of thought experiments, hypothetical perspective taking, knowing that this isn't what it's, it's you're ultimately going to be like, but trying to imagine if you're in a position where every time that someone like you did something, someone else just took it away from you. Every time that you were successful, you were put down. Every opportunity that you tried to pursue, you were basically told, no, you can't have that opportunity. Someone else is going to get it because they're better than you. Right. And not for anything that you've done, but because of what you look like. They're better than you. So right. then once you overcome, let's say you you like, well, I'm going to I'm going to get an education. I'm going to get really good at these skills. And you go and do that. And you still are not able to be selected because someone else who looks different, who's less qualified, they're told they're better than you because you look different. And that just keeps happening. And so uh, this is. I feel like probably I'm preaching to the choir. I imagine most of our listeners already understand this, right? Right. And like, this is not necessarily new information, but this is an exercise I like to think of for myself. When I hear about these people who are just like, they're so oblivious, they're so blind to their racism, when, even when they're, they're, they're saying they're in support of things that are, I guess, promoting equity, but then they, they do and they say these things that are so racist Mm -hmm. I just keep thinking like, God, if, if you could just listen to yourself, like put yourself in the position of the people you're putting down right now and you, you never take the other side. And, and even so, I think it's fairly obvious that the listeners of this, that we, we come from a fairly left leaning perspective here. I think that, that yeah. that's not anything that's uh, really a, a mystery. I truly hard, really hard not to push politics on this platform. Right. But I really try and put myself in the perspective of people who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum from me. I want to listen to what they say and try and think, okay, were I in their position, could I understand where they're coming from? And even though like, I don't think that they're right, it's helpful for me to try and see things from their point of view and try and say, okay, could they be right? Why do they think this? Where are they coming from? And try and understand. And I think that's, not something that I see coming the other direction, you know? Right, right, right. It's like, I'm going to try to find every single way I can to show you that you're wrong. Right. And I just feel like that's not helpful. And it's also not further in the conversation. And so, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just trying to to provide my own sort of insight for myself for what I've sort of learned in going through this. And as I said, hopefully 
this doesn't feel too preachy to everybody. I'm sure it probably does, but I'm sure, like I said, that most of you who are listening right now that you already like, you already think about these things. And I would encourage you going back to the statement we had from this college student, like, don't be so dismissive as like, right. I'm not racist. I got this guys. Instead, like from again, thinking from my own perspective, just being open to the idea that I could be wrong and I want to figure out how to fix it. Right. Because you simply, again, going back to the beginning of this, you cannot account for that person's experience especially if they're coming from a marginalized group and you are not part of that marginalized group, you cannot account or experience what that person is experiencing. Bottom line. I mean, so it takes work to understand that it takes work to practice that it takes work to take the perspective and to try to do better because while you're not intending to be harmful, intention is not really the problem. It's the act. That's the problem. Yeah. Let's go ahead and close this up. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's good. Okay. I think that's good. So, I love this quote from Elliot. So Elliot actually concludes the Angry Eye documentary by saying, quote, when am I going to quit? When racists quit? Do I have a job for a lifetime? I'm afraid so. End quote, which is sad, but important to note because we have to recognize that this is a thing that is an ongoing journey, an ongoing process, and it's going to take more than a single person running exercises in a classroom to change all of this. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, we sort of described prejudice exists every, everywhere. It's throughout the world, throughout history. It'll be a part of our future. And it, there's many different forms that it can take. And it, it evolves to marginalize different populations of uh, people for different reasons. But people like Jane Elliott believe that by demonstrating the effects of prejudice firsthand, particularly to youths, she may help instill a foundation of empathy and sympathy that these people that are part of this, children and later students and whatnot, can carry through their interactions with others into adulthood. Yeah, and you can actually see a lot of this really great teaching, maybe not directly related to prejudice, but like within pro-social literature and pro-social research, you see kind of this like work towards like empathy and sympathy and caring for others and for the benefit of the group, right? So I think that there is like starting to, like that's starting to blossom a lot more, although it's not as widespread as I wish it was or it could be. So I think just leaving it on the the point here that racism is learned and what what we've learned can be unlearned, I think, is, is, is one of my main take homes from this. I think that while this exercise itself was probably not, you know, the most scientifically rigorous, I think it's an excellent demonstration of something that is a clear and pervasive problem in our society, in any society, really. Yeah, I think it's I think it's worth examining and spending time with. Cool. So that is Jane Elliott and yep. how to teach prejudice. Yep. And so, yeah, let's move on to some recommendations. Let's do it. Recommendations. All right. I am going to recommend a movie and a book, I guess. Yes. I can't remember if I've recommended this before. I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm starting to lose track, but. Maybe you're a new listener, so if so, then this is the first time you're hearing it. Maybe you heard it and forgot. Whatever, it doesn't matter. I am recommending The Martian. Mm. Both the book and the movie, they're so good. This is one of my favorite movies. The book is just incredible. Probably one of my favorite books. So I, I strongly recommend it. The Martian by Andy Weir. W-E-I-R, Andy Weir. Yeah, from what I understand, they're pretty... I love that like hard science fiction where it's like like kind of scientifically accurate or at least close to it. And from what I understand, they do a pretty accurate depiction of like what would be necessary for for these types of stories to happen. Right. Yes. And I believe, as I recall learning about this, that this was started as sort of a an online anthology blog where the author was recruiting people from the science community saying, 
what if this happened? And then they would weigh in and he would sort of write the story using experts. And so he did had to had to sort of flub some things to make the to make the story work. But ultimately, it was, I think, a huge success. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Artemis is a fantastic book by him, too. So, all right. I'm going to recommend a website. It's called thriftbooks.com. And I'm going to actually recommend this as an alternative to Amazon or most other big box online stores. Thrift Books is they sell mostly used books. So you're not going to be buying something brand new and they have a, a pretty great selection. And actually, I've been looking for this one book for the last, I don't know, four years because it's supposed to be like a staple in like the punk rock community. It's called Get in the Van by Henry Rollins. I've been trying to find it everywhere. And if you go on like Amazon, it's like $300, $400, $500. Well, I was able to find it for much less than that and get a copy of it. And now I am going to own a copy so that I can actually enjoy this book that's been out of print since like 1993 or four. So thrift books, it's really great. It, the books are cheap. They ship to you. It's a great alternative to Amazon. If you're looking to do something a little bit different. <laughs> I was just going to try and make some Amazon joke in there, but that sounds great. <laughs> All right. If you like used books and want to share some places where you get your used books, then feel free to send those to us. If you have any particular thoughts about Andy Weir, or you are Andy Weir, or you're a Martian, we definitely love to hear from you. <laughs> if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, or any experiences with anything related to this experiment by Jane Elliott, I would just be tickled pink if we could tell that story. So please write us, let us know your thoughts on anything that we have said here today. If you are a anti-racist and have some uh, additional recommendations uh, for books, love to hear those. If you are a racist, Go do some reading and don't bother contacting us until you've figured things out in life a little bit better. But for the most of you, yep. we want to hear from you. I'm very excited to hear from all all listeners and what they have to say. So please reach us on all of our social media platforms at WWD, WWD Podcast. Our email is also info at WWD, WWD Podcast.com. Our website is the same thing. You can find out about this episode and more. And if you'd like to uh, just say hello, we also like hearing that. We like knowing how you heard about us. If you have any tips about where we should be putting our our time and energy to try and get our podcast out to people. Yep. I think that's all I got. You have anything else, Shane? Nope, that's it. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast, or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Hey.